Escape from Plan A. Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. Um, I'm your host today, Diana, and we've got a very special episode today. I'm joined by a bunch of awesome people. Um, Arnav, who last time you heard from him was on the Never Have I Ever podcast from like 50 episodes ago. Um, And we also have Michelle, who was on the... um, the five bloods episode oh also like 30 episodes ago and then john um who wrote this really excellent article about how to maintain your groceries during covid you know when you don't want to go out to the grocery stores that often and that was really awesome so hello guys thank you for joining me um please uh introduce yourselves if you want and um I just want also to let everybody know that we are day drinking, so we're very, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, Arnav, do you want to, or maybe like John, do you want to say anything about yourself since you're like the first first time guest? Uh, sure, um, I'm I'm John, uh, I live in Chicago, and if anyone read the article I wrote, I think it came out like, Right around at the start of the uh, lockdown, um, I, I I mean I have a food blog just for fun. It's called um, Chinese Food and Other Stuff um, dot com. So check it out for all sorts of rambling stuff, and mostly it's mostly like just recipes and cooking uh, focused. Awesome, yeah. You have um, an Instagram too. We we can link all of those things um, in the show notes if you want. Oh, that's, I mean, it's fine. I'm, I'm not very active on my Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, um, Arnav, how about you? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm Arnav. Uh, I live in San Francisco, kind of like I've been working on a startup here for a bit, but I've been in the Bay for a long time now. And uh, yeah, I was on the uh, Never Have I Ever pod like uh, 50-ish episodes ago. And uh, why do I care about food slash what's my interest in it? Well, I love to eat and I love to eat a lot of different things. And uh, that just got me interested in things like food history, uh, you know, like diff- like what makes flavor important, and like kind of how do, how do different cuisines like you know layer flavor or layered flavor, and what are the like staples over there. So that's kind of where my interest came from. I've done a couple of cooking live streams as well, just for fun on with like friends, like on like friends' small Instagram pages. So uh, yeah, that's kind of like broadly what my interest in this is about. And uh, yeah, for the record, so in case my mom's listening and thinks I'm a degenerate, I'm actually not day drinking right now because it's 11 a.m. in uh, San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Last but not least, um, Michelle, like you're you're actually in the food industry, right? I am. Um, This is Michelle. I live in Nashville and I work in the craft cocktail bar industry. Um, I've always had a really big interest in food and cooking and actually didn't always work in the hospitality industry, but my interest sort of led me to 
do it as a sort of side job and eventually became my main my main my main job and it's hard now given the pandemic but we're pulling through for now yeah so like you used to work in a lab right like were you trained as a scientist I was a research assistant in the cancer research lab and Mm -hmm. um I did that for over 10 years and it was a lot in clinical research so I didn't do as much lab work as I was wanting to do and so one when I started working part-time on the weekends at this bar um, and opportunities came up to increase my workload there um, I just sort of took it and that just bloomed from there that's cool yeah I'm always interested in like what career paths people take (laughs) it's definitely shown me that college does not matter really Mm -hmm. like I, I I was a biology major in college and I don't think I actually used really much of my class knowledge classroom knowledge in the research lab it was I mean you know, it's all about experience and learning as you go. And Mm -hmm. that's what I did as I jumped industries too. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I worked in a ramen shop for a little bit. That was pretty, that was pretty cool. But I feel like people just kind of gravitate toward what they want to do most, like just in general. Because, like, eventually I was like, yeah, I'm not really super interested in cooking, even though I love it, you know, but, like, I, I just eventually gravitated toward writing more. And I also started in biology. So, you know, it's just, like, I think, I, I feel like there's a, a limit to how how boxed in somebody can be to, like, you know, like, fit some sort of, like, idea of what they think they should do. But eventually, like, their personality catches up to them and they just like do something else, you know, do whatever it is that they actually want to do. Yeah. People tell me all the time that I should open a restaurant and just seeing the work and the dynamics of that. I, I'm not tempted at all, even though I work (laughs) in the industry, like the, the kind of like the side that I work on more, more like management and, doing some like I do have have some hands on um hands on with like the actual drinks but not working back of or front of house or like on a line like that sort of thing I just I I think it would take the joy out of cooking for me like I, I really like I really love cooking for people and sharing my food but like to scale it up to like a restaurant level that seems really daunting and not joyful to me <laughs> yeah i totally relate with you michelle because a lot of my friends ask me the exact same thing if like so when are you gonna open a restaurant and i'm always saying like never because <laughs> i have i have a decent number of you know family members that's uh either currently in the food industry or or have done it before and i've heard you know, it's extremely tough, um, but also, I mean, I have like just the reality of it, just horrible feet, so I can't stand that long. Um, but, you know, just also the pressure um, from what I hear of 
how thin the margins are to keep yourself alive as a restaurant or a bar or anything like that. Um, that introduces something, uh, a lot of pressure to, to kind of keep it going. And I think it puts a lot of limit on just having fun with, you know, uh, with cooking and making stuff. And um, it, it just kind of becomes something different when you have to do it for a living. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, and I remember reading about different like cooking techniques. So, uh, yeah, so uh, it's kind of always been like a pet project of mine to open like a bar with like really like limited drinks, but like very strong ones and also have a lot of also has a lot of drinking food from around the world. Uh, like in India, it's called Chakna. In Trinidad, it's called Carters. I think there's like a Korean word for it that I forgot as well. Uh, but yeah, like uh, I remember reading Anthony Bourdain's like first book, like Kitchen Confidential, and I was like, oh, okay, this seems, you know, this seems, you know, interesting. Like a bunch of like, you know, a bunch of shenanigans happening in the kitchen. But the more I read into it, the more I'm like, you know, cooking in a kitchen is as different from cooking at home as I don't know, like building like a car in a factory is from building like a bunch of, you know, like DIY robots at home, right? So, uh, yeah, so I figured that, oh, yeah, there's a great romantic fantasy that every that I feel like a lot of millennials have about opening a bakery or a restaurant or a bar or something. And the reality seems a lot more difficult from day to day stuff to like the actual to actually making it work like what uh, you guys just said. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, like if you own a bakery, you have to get up at like three in the morning every single day. And sometimes you don't you don't finish work until like seven or eight at night. You know, it's just like you, you have to dedicate your whole life to this. Like, I think, you know, being in science or uh, whatever, like it, it's actually way less dedication than if you're a baker or in the food industry. And like, I, I don't think there are any like regular people, like civilians appreciate how much work, just like labor, like and super skilled labor goes into into this. It's just crazy. Um, okay, but yeah. So long introduction, but this episode is about food and kind of. I guess the one of the things that um, made me want to talk about this now is because, well, first of all, there's like the whole um, Asian american trope of like the stinky lunchbox or whatever and that's been in the media for for a while now and i think that um it's like such a shallow take it's such a shallow like neoliberal take on like all the shit that um that is relevant to asian diaspora you know the interaction between the west and asia and related to food um and I just kind of like wanted to cover a lot of it because I feel like we have a lot of experience you know collectively based like based on our like knowledge of food our interest in just cooking at home and as well as our um industry experiences and you know like I think so for me like what like I started being becoming interested in cooking in grad school you know like I would literally just go on food porn blogs like every single day and um you know like not go to class and just like procrastinate my real work because I was like oh I love food and I 
like love cooking so much um and then so I did a lot of cooking then I kind of stopped once like work became um became like more uh like took over my life more but like lately during COVID I've been cooking a lot more and kind of like going back to the blogs I would read and the recipes that I would make and like but with more of like a um understanding like a like a deeper understanding of like um geopolitics you know social awareness than I did when like 10 years ago and I feel like a lot of it is like super unsettling kind of you know just like just like how colonized every aspect of food is and I feel like the framing of like oh you know like we were um like as Asians our foods were not accepted by white people and now they're accepted by white people how do I deal like that's so limited and so uh basically this we're just gonna do like a really long deep dive on all of that um I'm not really sure where to begin but like I kind of wanted to just talk through everything with you guys because like we actually like in the uh group um the planning like discord that we have we talk about food a lot but our content isn't really food based at all but like the, there's so much um there's so much connection that we could make there. And I think that's um, something that, you know, we're especially suited to do because like we do have those like deep political conversations as well as like <laughs> just sharing what stakes we've made, you know, and like sharing like <laughs> really good tips, you know, and like historical knowledge and stuff like that, because it's all connected. It's all connected. And I feel like in some ways, like, um, these kind of cultural artifacts, you know, they are a more obvious uh, examples of like how cultures actually are and interact than anything that's like more overtly political because these are things that we produce that we're not really aware of, you know, and these are the comp. And that's why the conflicts arise is because, you know, we feel safe unleashing our opinions about food but it's really a reflection of like a broader um antagonism or conflict going on in the broader like broader world so, yeah it does uh, it does often seem like a proxy for a broader thing about uh, i guess in the case of diaspora i guess explicitly around assimilation and exploitation as well right uh, uh -huh. and the whole thing about white acceptance kind of uh plays a very interesting and kind of uh, like, you know, mind fucking frustrating role in it as well, because uh, I think I think the general perception is that if you're like, you know, from a minority uh, and, you know, with a very with and no matter how long or how diverse or how intricate and complex your, uh, you know, your culture's food tradition might be, uh, I feel like there's always if you're in the West, there's always a there's always a kind of uh, there's always kind of extra validation you crave that comes from, you know, being in, a, you know, in a bougie, like, white space, right? So, uh, you know, like, so basically moving from a hole in the wall, uh, Chinese restaurant or curry house into being like, a, you know, like a trendy, 
like a trendy like restaurant in i don't know like uh like downtown san francisco or or new york or wherever where there's like little swirls and shit on the plate you know you know what i mean yeah yeah um i don't know if you're all familiar with this guy's name uh krishnanu ray uh he wrote um this book called the uh, the ethnic restaurant tour it's a, you can look it up and there's like interviews with him on npr and stuff but um the the whole thing is it's a pretty interesting um book and it talks about this thing that he he uh coined called the uh, global hierarchy of tastes and and that's uh he's he he lives in america but um i think he immigrated here but it, it's it is this perception that's deeply tied to um certain uh cuisines and uh the the value of uh what you can charge for at a restaurant as well as perceived status and he related it to how it's tied with uh global power of the respective countries that that they have come from um so it, it is something that um i think it's it's not really looked into that much from a lot of the food content that we see online um but it is starting to play out more and more especially with china um as as it's been rising um so much in the last uh, decade or two yeah i feel you see something similar with uh, you saw something similar rather with uh, japanese food right like if you like i remember like looking at uh, random like editorials and shit from the 50s and mm-hmm. everyone is just talking shit about sushi and all the you know all this weird shit, all this weird all this quote unquote weird shit that uh, japanese people eat and you go to the 80s and suddenly you know like sushi like blows up to become a thing and then japanese fine dining becomes a thing in itself uh, diana i think you noted in the show notes that uh, tokyo i think has the highest density of michelin star restaurants and western foodies love going crazy over japanese food uh, i don't blame them i go crazy over japanese food too but it's interesting that you know like japan's considered uh, kind of has this whole like this whole weird fetishization of japan's like craftsmanship or artisan culture as it relates to food which leads to you know people uh you know making like crazy documentaries about sushi chefs and that kind of thing and uh yeah. the thing is it's not unique right like anywhere you go in the world there's to be really good at any kind of food you need to be very very skilled and the best guys have been doing it for like 20 30 years at least and i feel like that's i feel like that's kind of like universal yeah well the the thing about this is that it's always framed um that uh you you have to have uh whiteness as as part of part of that sort of whole dialogue or focus and and so like mission stars you know comes from france and all this stuff and even krishnan duray's um analysis i mean obviously it does come from taking only data points within the united states um kind of are not like bringing it back to japan it's like the food meter here we kind of have this thing where we you know we do mention once in a while maybe in like more hipster stuff like vice um we mentioned a mixture of that in japanese and 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 western or white you know sort of aesthetics and flavors as something to be held up so like uh yokushu is is definitely always, almost always mentioned but the thing that's kind of always surprising is that in inside of japan of course they've had a much longer and rich history of of cultural trade with china and that something like uh 
uh, chuka is not mentioned at all. And, and so some of the most popular foods today in America, most trendy, it, it is chuka, like, like ramen that, that came from China or like even some other things like the cha siu in, 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 um, in some ramen. That came from China, obviously, as well, uh, just from the name of it. But they, they've done it in a very different manner. And, and even, even karaage, that, the fried chicken, that, that literally means China fried. <laughs> so that's like oh, another thing from chuka. And that's all, you know, that's all ignored in, in our media is that, um, that when you talk about minorities in the context of America, it almost always has to be that the center of mass is is the um, relationship to that and whiteness, but never to other minority groups as well. Right. I think for Japan, you know, specifically, it has to do with um, just like the way that they interact with the West, just like their whole policy of interaction with the West is um, to kind of, I don't know, if it's like appeasement or whatever, like Jess knows a lot more about this than I do, but like, it's basically like they do this on purpose. You know, they kind of like package their cultural products into, um, in a way that like they know will appeal to the West and they increase their um, soft power uh, among the Asian countries because of that and like that was their strategy pre-world war ii and it you know it continued in right i mean like they had a much more aggressive strategy of that pre-world war ii and now like they're focused on soft power you know doing that kind of um uh that like like that kind of trade with the west uh trading their their cultural commodities and like as japanese um, Japanese cultural products and increasing like their social prestige and their cultural prestige by their interaction with the West. And I think that's a strategy that's like pretty u- unique to Japan. Um, like, I think we often focus on like, this is what the, the West is doing to them, but it's like, they're the ones that are saying, okay, we, we accept these terms and we're going to play along with them. Right. So like, like there's that side of it too. And, um, I think it, it like muddles the waters of like, um, I guess the victim narrative of what's going on. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think sometimes we kind of forget that on a global scale, all countries are kind of playing the same game in many ways, just in terms of gaining like, you know, like some kind of level of global prestige or, uh, you know, like, or in some cases, as I add, there's actual material benefit in terms of, uh, you know, bringing more tourists in or creating demand for like agri products and that kind of thing. And Japan, I think, does it really well for like this whole like craftsmanship, artisanship narrative. But uh, I remember reading that the Thai government actually did that for a lot of Thai restaurants, because I think in the West, the Thai diaspora is smaller than say like other other asian diaspora other asian diasporas i don't know the exact figures but yeah they had a whole push of sponsoring and exporting a lot of thai restaurants thai agri products and so on basically build thailand's profile and i think someone did i don't know if the irish gov- government did it but 
there was some trade group or like a bunch of like companies in Ireland that did the same thing with Irish pubs. So that's why wherever you go in the world, there will always be some Irish pub with the same kind of uh, decorations and like, you know, like Guinness on tap and, you know, a bunch of other crap that's very like, you know, kitschy Irish, but uh, you know, it works out. It works out. Uh, wow. Works I didn't know that. Well. <laughs> that's so cool. I mean, I was wondering why, like, there's so many Thai restaurants, but like, I don't know any Thai people, you know, <laughs> like, okay, so that makes that makes sense. Yeah. And I think um, as far as I know, like China's getting into that game now, too. Like, I think in Sichuan province, like, they had this big, um, like, like a lot of investment into like Sichuan cooking, and just like mm-hmm. promoting like mala. And now you see like mala hot pot everywhere. But I mean, it's like, it's like a, like Chongqing, I think is like an epicenter for like Sichuan food now. And they're, they're doing a lot to like, um, like promote their food all over the world. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of part of the game, but I guess the, the, the part that is still kind of fucked up is like, it, it still reinforces the, um, the white perspective as the the standard right like this is the this is the like big boss or you know like the um the arbiter of what is prestigious or not and like everybody has to play this game and so everybody playing this game kind of reinforces the power structure nevertheless at least for the time being um and i guess also in line with that is like every other culture like they're whatever they're selling they're still packaging it in a way that commodifies their culture and also kind of flattens it to like this one uh this one thing that sets them apart right so like for japanese food it's like the craftsmanship or whatever or for you know french and italian food it's um some kind of like ethno geo like like uh like specific geographies and like their ethno tradition or whatever. Um, But it's still flattening and dehumanizing. And when you combine it with uh, just like the dehumanization of racism, it it nevertheless like perpetuates this, um, this like pigeonholing of like certain groups as like, certain things right and it's like it's so gross right it's like um i mean i don't know a gross example and maybe we'll cut this but like um this one guy told me that he was dating like he's a brown guy and he was dating this white girl and she would call his dick a kebab you know what the fuck oh no oh no this is how (laughs) how white people think of like other human beings I was like these are commodified food products right so it's just like it's just adding to that and so I don't know I don't know what to do with that but that's just like a thing that I observed and I think that they're that's why it's like all related yeah I but feel anyways. like you can't make that kebab joke if you're not brown sorry guys <laughs> it's like it's like it's like growing up like back home we'd like you know we you know like being a bunch of like dumbass like teenagers we'd like make jokes like that but it's weird if you're like hooking up with someone and like they're saying that about your dick dude like come on 
no bueno mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> so uh so diana i think what you said is actually a pretty interesting transition to uh it's kind of like this one thing i was you know thinking about thinking about talking about which is the uh you know uh, the curry episode of ugly delicious i don't know if you guys watched the show or saw that episode specifically but i found it really interesting because it did a deep dive into indian food right and uh when i was watching it i was drinking a very nice japanese whiskey and i alternated between like screaming at the tv in joy because they went to all like a bunch of my favorite restaurants in bombay and getting ready to like throw the entire bottle of whiskey at the tv because somebody would say something stupid on it uh mm-hmm. yeah and uh, so the thing that stuck out to me was you know they kind of there's a cup the opening scene i if i remember correctly is with david chang and uh, padma lakshmi who's like you know like part of the diaspora has been like a pretty influential i don't know like sh- i don't know if she's actually a chef but she's been influential in food right and like that whole scene like yeah, maybe you want to like a food media person yeah exactly like she's been on, like, she was like a judge on top chef and a bunch of other stuff like i don't remember exactly what but that whole scene made me want to throw my whiskey at the tv because uh the entire thing the entire thing like you know she prepares a beautiful meal right and you know i look at it and i'm like this is, looks delicious it looks bright and like awesome but the entire time she's just bitching about the fact that uh you know like indian food hasn't quote unquote arrived in the us that uh you know like people don't consider it you know like high cuisine or whatever and i'm like well who gives a shit right and then that's contrasted with this whole uh interview david chang does with uh, floyd cardo's uh, rest in peace who's uh what probably one of the like most pioneering chefs in india he unfortunately passed away due to covid this year but he started this restaurant in india called bombay canteen right and that's one of my favorite restaurants in the world probably uh and the thing that was that, that he brought up was that you know like uh you know the reason that a restaurant like bombay canteen is great is because it takes a lot of regional indian food that if you grew up even if you grew up in like the biggest most diverse cities in india like bombay or delhi or something Uh, you probably wouldn't get access to a lot of it either because there's you know not too many people from all, a lot of these like smaller regions in the city or because uh there's or because you know the only way you would uh, get access to it was by going to someone's house to eat it because a lot of this is like just cooked at home and not really cooked in restaurants or even like street food stalls or anything and so to me that was like kind of like the contrast where it's you know like rediscovering and like looking at your own culture's cuisine versus trying to like you know make it you know like have it arrive in food media or whatever the fuck whatever the fuck that meant and uh yeah i think the latter thing is important right because uh even if you grew even if you grow up in uh you know in like your home country or wherever uh there's so much like change that's been happening because of globalization etc that a lot of traditional techniques etc do you know do get lost and it's important to preserve them and at the same time it just leads to like new kinds of innovations and like a whole new kind of food scene around the world uh, food scene so yeah that was a uh, that was just an interesting juxtaposition but the bottom line is that you got to i feel like there's i feel like we don't often we don't always try to do it for ourselves and our own communities and are mainly doing it for what's a white dominated uh, you know industry around like food media and uh, like around food media and that kind of thing Yeah for sure I mean like um I have a bunch of friends that are other you know second generation like myself Chinese and for the ones that I know that were born and raised in Chicago I I was born and raised in Hawaii so I don't I still don't know the 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 distinct you know um 
relations and whatever else of this particular Chinatown because it, it is it is unique. I I know that, but among some of my friends that have lived here and grew up here, they have mentioned that um, the uh, the Cantonese uh, number of restaurants have been disappearing over time. Uh, especially with the newer trends in the last ten years of a lot of um, you know just a new wave of immigrants, so you you do get a lot of um, northern or central Chinese styles that are popping up. But a lot of these um, you know old school Cantonese uh, restaurants are closing shop, and um, even um, the immigrants, the parents, right? They are saying that certain um, uh, dishes are disappearing, and I I kind of think. It is good to go back and to try to, you know, learn learn this sort of stuff. It's not to say that it's disappearing or becoming extinct. Um, I, I think for the diaspora here, they they have that sense of urgency, and I, I felt that earlier too. But I think that's because we're limited to um, to only looking at uh, our, our our small surroundings here. And a lot of this stuff is actually just still kept alive very well inside of China. Um, so I think a big thing is is to have have to start looking towards media that is simply just not Western media um, to kind of reconnect with that sort of information and to kind of you know just keep that stuff alive. Yeah, there's like like when you think of diaspora i guess there's um or like cultural spread it's just like oh maybe it's not kept alive in the u.s but you know like for example dim sum that's cantonese you know and like that used to be only available in hong kong and guangzhou but now like it's available everywhere in china like you can get dim sum in beijing like um i was watching a bunch of youtube videos on that like like a uh, food like vloggers vloggers i don't know what you call them but like they go around china like going to all these different places and it's like when i was a kid like you could not get um all any of this stuff in my hometown and now you can get it and it's like cantonese shit and it's awesome and like there's so much there's so much going on outside of like what's quote-unquote disappearing right in in the u.s and like Honestly, I think sometimes it, if it's disappearing, that's a good thing because it means that a lot of the immigrants who like um, opening that Cantonese restaurant in some Chinatown, that was their only way of making a living. But their kids have gone to college and gone on to do other things. And it's a um, it's a sign of upward mobility for that set of immigrants, right? And like the newer immigrants, they're from other places in China now. And so that's why their, their cuisines and their restaurants are opening up. And it's a sign of progress, not necessarily just like, oh, it's it's I can't see it in my neighborhood. There's therefore it's disappeared from the earth. Like that's such a um what's it called? Myopic. <laughs> that's such a myopic um understanding of the world. It's very American, I think. It's just like, oh, if if it's not on these shores, it must not exist. Right, or if it's not even written in English, it doesn't exist. Right, it's, yeah. 
Yeah, there's I mean, there there are like historical cookbooks in in Chinese that I I mean I only have one of them that goes back to the Qing Dynasty, and even that actually it does mention dim sum as well in there for some of those dishes. They're very different and it's very um, high end stuff, but it's you know it, you can find all sorts of things well documented. It, it, you just have to go more to the source. Yeah. Well, oh, Oh, I was going to say, like, even with Western media that, you know, is making pushes to be more diverse and more global, like, even so, they're doing that in English. And that limits, you know, their writer and their reporter so much in what they can find out and discover and learn about, or, you know, even talking about of cuisine is limited if all you know is English and yeah I think like as far as limits of western media um, that's something that's rarely even talked about because you know we're talking about more diverse writers more diverse journalists and but still just the assumption that they're going to be writing in English so I'd like to see more of an effort to writing in the language of the culture and then i mean there are, are limits to translation too but i think there's a lot that's lacking because of this assumption that english is the language of exposure right totally i mean is there does that have anything to do with like um just the, like the amount of exposure that english gets versus other languages or like how the pay structure works? Like, um, do you know anything about that? Um, I don't know too much about that, but um, I just think, um, I just get the sense that that's just not something that, you know, high level editors are thinking about. Like, you know, only this summer we had the whole blow up at Bon Appetit. And I mean, they're they're like they're like barely they're they're doing the bare minimum like they're at the bare minimum level of like realizing what they need to do so the thought of hiring people who can who are fluent in in different languages i i don't think that's even been given much of a thought or isn't isn't on the forefront of all these like diversity initiatives no, yeah, I'm... Bon Appetit. Bon Appetit were a bunch of racist ass uh, chutias. I hope that what is that editor's name? Like the guy who got fired for like trying to like Adam Rapport. Yeah, fuck him, man. Like, I hope he gets fucked by a cactus. Uh, sorry, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like I I remember. Um, so like some of these institutions, I mean, they're they're fairly large and and they have definitely the budgets for translators, but they won't even. They definitely won't go that far, um, so it's not even crossing our mind. I remember a few years ago in the New York Times for their food section, um, they had this uh, recipe, and um, it was so ridiculous. It was basically them making uh, chasil, 
And in it, they go as far as to like even give a shout out to Namue, like, you know, like to have a little thing to give a little bit more like, oh, we're being, you know, specific enough that we know about this unknown, you know, uh, the, the red fermented tofu and give some info. But then, you know what they do? And, and they also interview a Chinese um, family, like mom and pop uh, restaurant about, you know, making cha siu. But you know what they do? For the recipe, they go straight to this white food blogger who made this Asian style uh, ribs as the basis for their for for their chasio and 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 it's it's completely based on ketchup and they they oh say oh my god oh dude that's yeah. uh, that's and, a crime against humanity yeah actually and, I don't know actually I don't know ketchup I feel like ketchup could work but never mind. No, no, but I but mean, the, <laughs> but ketchup did it originate in China, so <laughs> yeah, but it gets even better. It gets even better. They they said like at the end, as if you know, mentioning namyue is just good enough. They they they're just like, oh, if you don't have namyue in your pantry, just use one to one namyue to ketchup. It's it's good. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, what? The salt content is like kind of high. That's like so. Anybody that has this in your pantry, next time you get some fries, dip into that and let me know if it tastes like ketchup because it's totally different. Wait, this is the from like uh, dofuru. That's what they're talking about. Yeah, the the red kind, the the one that's fermented with the with the red yeast. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. that's nothing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, good uh, luck. Yeah. Speaking of the New York Times, like, I think they got into controversies for two things that I remember very, like, clearly. One is they had a guac guac recipe that used for that put peas in it or something. And I'm like, dude, like, this is a, should be a cannibal offense. But then the other one, I think, really, peas like, great, in it? They, put Wait, peas in the they put peas, like, oh, fucking peas. green peas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they put, like, green peas in the fucking guac. And I'm like, dude, this is some, like, come on, bro. This should be you should be caned for this, but the uh, one that uh, really like I think grinded a lot of people's gears was this one uh, food writer like uh, what's her name Allison Roman. Allison Roman. Oh yeah. yeah. So she had the famed famed spic- the famed spiced chickpea stew. Yeah, <laughs> and like they do like all kinds of like chutiagiri like dumbassery in that like they'll put like raw turmeric like raw haldi on top, and I'm like, dude, this uh. is a this is like. This is like spice. This is like spice cooking, like level zero. Like you do not put raw turmeric on anything. It tastes like ass, and there's no smell that comes out. You gotta like fry it in some oil or something, and then and like people love this recipe. Everybody fucking loves this recipe. I like, know. Uh, <laughs> I was, I, like one time I was at a friend's place. He like looked at. It, he's like, bro, you wanna try making this? Cause I was like, cause I'd offered to cook that day, and I'm like, uh, we're not gonna make this one. We're gonna make something better but that involved me hauling my entire spice kit down to santa cruz which was difficult but worth it and then she's the one who started talking shit about chrissy Teigen and marie kondo oh yeah, yeah she's, the was, same she's the same she's the same writer yeah and i i think i remember looking her recipe i think on um i forget what it was exactly called but it was like crispy fried pork chop or something but it was it was literally tonkatsu <laughs> like it was it was literally tonkatsu and, and like every part of it it was the same sort of you know thing yeah it was yeah you like... see this no go ahead 
Oh, no, I was just saying it was just like very infuriating. But yeah, like you're saying, you see it fucking everywhere. Yeah, I'm saying that it's um, it's not it's not even just like food. It's like everything, you know. Like the there's young adult novelists who like take a Chinese myth and like write it as if they invented it, and they even like have Asian characters, but it's like totally off and so weird that they're doing this and then those books sell for so much money they're like they 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 make bank off of these like old ass myths that um never saw the light of day when an asian person wrote about it or talked about it but now that this like white bitch <clears throat> is putting it on her blog suddenly it's the it's all the rage you know it's it's infuriating I feel like this is where the whole cultural appropriation like anger comes from because on face value, something like appropriation isn't, uh, you know, isn't like necessarily a big deal, right? Because historically, every culture, like whenever they interact with another, there's always an exchange that happens and so on. But uh, in this specific context, it basically, the subtext obviously is that, you know, you as a, you know, Asian person or uh, like, you know, brown person or black person or whatever, are not the right messenger for bringing the wondrous gifts of your culture to quote unquote the world, which means white people. And I think that just, that's what the resentment basically comes down to, right? Like the broader narrative of exclusion and forced assimilation. Yeah, it's the asymmetry of power and control. Um, yeah. Underneath as, all of this. Yeah, as well as just kind of clearly taking these cultural um products and artifacts that are created by these you know by one group of people and then you're just deleting those people out of like you know just they don't matter anymore you just take their stuff and disappear yeah i i think that's the foundation of it right it's like the disappearing people you know and i think that's like a that's something that like we get on a like a like a very deep like maybe subconscious level but it's hard to articulate but i mean that's that's the heart of it is that like it's not an exchange because the white people they're just taking they're not adding anything they're just taking from the brown people and saying you don't exist anymore this is our shit now and like that has like deep roots in like just genocide in general you know like as well oh as well as the colonial histories of Mm -hmm. of these imperialist countries (laughs) yeah i mean like those colonial histories were genocidal as well it's just that they didn't fucking work because there wasn't smallpox to help them along you know but like it's not like like those colonial wars were not genocidal like they would have been genocidal if they could have helped it. And like, like I, we did this uh, pod, this bonus pod about um, this uh, article called like the three pillars of white supremacy. And one of them does talk about, um, you know, like how like cultural appropriation is the at its root, a genocidal fantasy. So it says, um, and it's talking about this part is talking about like cultural appropriation of Native Americans. And it says the current Indian wannabe phenomenon is based on a logic of genocide, 
non-native peoples imagine themselves as the, as the rightful inheritors of all that previously belonged to vanished Indians, thus entitling them to ownership of this land. So the living performance of playing Indian by non-Indian peoples depends on the physical and psychological removal of real Indians. So the performance, which is purportedly done out of a stated and implicit love for Indians, is really the obverse and another well-known phenomenon called Indian hating. And that's, that is, you know, that like, the performance of that is essentially genocide, you know, and that is what happened because like the reasoning is like, if you're a non-native people, like why do you need to play Indian if there's already um, Indians who are, are like native Americans who are alive and they're creating their cultural artifacts and living on the land perfectly fine themselves. And so I guess the basis, you know, I mean, I guess my point is this is at the heart of like Asian cultural appropriation too. It's a psychological removal of Asians from Asianness. Um, and it's not like, you know, Alison Roman is doing this consciously, but like at like a liminal level, this is what is happening. You know, it's basically a commodification of genocide and it's the anchor for colonialism and like we know that this is something that white people have tried to do in asia in the past and that they want to do again because they're shitheads like david attenborough who think that you know like killing off all the brown people in the world like um eugenics is the solution to global warming and like hillary clinton has said that the 21st century is going to be america's pacific century so i feel like just the whole narrative of um oh we don't like cultural appropriation because it's about us not being included in whiteness and like we want to be included well it's like that's never gonna happen because the whole point of cultural appropriation is to remove you as a person is to remove you and to kill you and so like i think that's something that we kind of understand on like a really deep level but when it comes out or maybe the people who are like our figureheads, you know, as Asians in the community, like that's all they know how to bitch about. And then they control the narrative, but like the real narrative is genocide. And so like, I feel like when we react to that, it shouldn't be that um, we're, Oh, like we want inclusion so much. It should be like, yeah, why don't you try to genocide us bitch? Cause you fucking can't <laughs> you've tried for a hundred, two hundred years, and you fucking can't. So fucking deal with it. <laughs> that should be the appropriate thing. But uh, I think to add to that, I feel like a lot of the, you know, the anxiety or the, you know, like the deep, like you know, resentment or rage against what we call cultural appropriation, I think, comes specifically from the perspective of being part of the diaspora, right? And I think there's a, you know, there's an, I think there's an anxiety among. I think maybe you see this more among Asian Americans because the you know the Asian diaspora is relatively new compared to 
say you know uh, you know black people in uh, black black people in america or uh, doesn't necessarily have as well developed of a uh, like you know for new world identity that say like you know maybe country like uh, countries in latin america do uh, i think there's like a real fear of you know the diaspora itself uh, not fully realizing its own identity and being assimilated before it can do so if that makes sense Mm-hmm. like yeah like china japan india vietnam like none, none of these countries or their cultures are going uh, going anywhere anytime soon and they they'll always be there but uh, you know the japanese diaspora the chinese diaspora within the us or within the uk or i guess like even uh, the indian chinese diaspora like the chinese people in india uh, there's a real fear that you know over time like because migration is going to reduce uh and because you know people might assimilate into the broader population that whatever culture was created by these people who are displaced from their home is going to uh, it was frankly going to go away and i think that's a real and honestly pretty valid fear but i also like don't but it's also like hard to map out or talk about it in that way i feel yeah that's a really good point i mean like like look at the chinese exclusion act like they literally had policies to disappear and genocide Asians, you know? So like, yeah, it is legitimate and I do feel like that could happen again. But at the same time, I feel like there's some there's some um thing where like I think you feel that anxiety more if you identify with Americanness versus with your home country more, right? Because if you're identifying as an America more, then there's more anxiety. But if you think about like the broader global um, situation that like people like you are coming from, like at least for me, that makes that makes it easier for me because I'm just like, who the fuck cares what goes on here? You know, like this is just a drop in the bucket, and like there's other diasporas you know all over the globe like even outside of the anglosphere you know there's like tons of chinese people in like every country you know tons of brown people everywhere like they can't kill us all they just can't (laughs) they can try but they They can't can't. yeah (laughs) and like we're like even even if they try you know like like in in indonesia they tried to there were like massacres of Chinese people and those communities still survive like black communities in America still survive and are thriving whenever they can. So it's like and and also Native Americans are still like fighting against oppression. So it's like even if the white narratives say that we've we're done we're gone we're not here like the truth is they're liars so fuck them oh yeah i don't know no yeah yeah that's actually awesome awesome that you bring that up because i feel like there's all these long enduring diasporas around the world that have kind of you know like adapted uh like the the food that they came that they came with from their home country to kind of like local like you've seen so like Japanese in Brazil did that but also like Indians in Trinidad and Jamaica and the rest of the Caribbean and did that not just with food but with uh, music as well so uh, this is a bit of a digression but I feel like it's a nice fun fact to share so 
there's this great like um bollywood well, bollywood ish movie called uh, gangs of wasipur that's set in uh, bihar in north india and it kind of like spans like multiple decades this is an epic like you know like crime story about like two like rival like uh, like criminal families there and uh one thing that was cool was that in order to recreate a lot of the music for that uh because they were like going back you know going back in time so much and really wanted to like have a lot of the you know hard to find folk music there they literally like went to trinidad and like studied with a bunch of like uh, what like what they call chutney musicians like chutneys is genre of music from trinidad and like you know found a bunch of the old instruments that people in trinidad still use because it's kind of like a you know it's kind of like an immigrant time warp thing right like they went there about 100 years ago and you know the traditions changed in india and uh, yeah so they actually got some of the instruments and got some of these guys to contribute to the soundtrack and i thought that was really cool because i'm like you know you've got these people who were you know sent to trinidad as indentured labor by the british and <clears throat> you know like ended up having to settle there instead of going back home for various reasons and they kind of like not only preserved a lot of the uh, stuff they came with but also like reinvented it and created all kinds of other dank stuff like uh, this great trinidadian snack called doubles which is basically uh, basically like a chana bhatura sandwich and if i had to simplify it a lot so yeah just a fun fact out there about uh, diasporas and doing cool shit that's so cool that's so cool like john yeah. um you were saying earlier at some point like um a lot of the martial arts are like they kind of disappeared in asia but like the diaspora in chinatowns have been keeping it up too so i mean it's like that's stuff like going on all around the world and like i think Arnavi bring up a really good point also that like um the cultures in your homeland and our homelands are actually like changing and moving probably at a much faster pace than like diaspora cultures um mm-hmm. so it's like it's not like i mean i i feel like the like the white world kind of wants to have this like framing of like other cultures as like completely stagnant in in the past you know yeah like um, some shit you can like just dip into and like grab like take a little bit of stuff from basically like kind of making it like kind of making other cultures into a fucking chipotle bowl you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's like they're moving also they're they're changing and growing and a lot of times they're changing at a much faster pace than uh the west is or that the west um can't even imagine you know it's like in 10 years like india has gone from x to you know like a and so has like all these other countries so it's like the the idea of the culture is like probably 100 years in the past by the time they even understand what it is now so i mean that's that's only a detriment to the west you know Yeah, I think yeah, that's why yeah. for me um that's why for me like the whole cultural appropriation conversation is not so, like I don't feel anxiety over it it's more just annoyance because for a lot a lot of white people just see it as a conversation about oh what am I allowed to do like am should I just am I only allowed to cook and eat white food and no one is saying that but I don't know maybe we should maybe that should be their punishment 
but <laughs> no spice for you. <laughs> no flavor for you. Only like fucking uh, what's the like whitest white food I can think of? Like I don't know, like fucking instant mac and cheese and Jello salad or something. I mean, I I like instant mac, but I do love instant mac too. But you know, yeah. Um, uh, Jello Jello salad, I think. That that's a big contender. O- only Jello salad salad for the whites. From now on. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so Michelle, it sounds like um, where you're you're maybe thinking of because I mean I in my mind it, it's kind of like for us as diaspora it it is kind of like well if we're going to break this whole um, you know outrage of cultural appropriation that always seems to be an endless cycle um, a thing it really would be to do is just simply to start turning your back from these um, white uh, institutions. Like, like for example, um, I brought it up with you guys beforehand, but there was an article in Food and Wine magazine, and it was a you know a Chinese writer, but it was basically about save you know save our Chinatowns, and they they have a hashtag about this, and I'm like, really, the. Food and Wine magazine is like really the, the, the demographic that supports and reads that. Do you think they really care about what goes on in Chinatowns? So it's like, why why should we even go to these institutions that somebody don't yeah don't won't, won't care about the diaspora? Yeah, for for me, it's so something that bothers me all the time, and um, living in Nashville the Asian restaurant food scene isn't great. And a lot of the time, if I want to eat some some Asian dish, it's sad, but I can cook it at home better than I can go somewhere to buy it. And... I need to peel. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I hear you on that. I feel uh, I feel pretty similarly about... A lot of the Indian food over here, which is, you know, it's very good at the restaurant, at the restaurants in the Bay and in many, and, you know, like, uh, even though curry houses, people might think of like curry house food as being quote unquote inauthentic or some shit like that. It still is like a very, like authentic, it still is a, I call it like to think of it as just an authentic type of Indian food. But the thing is that if I want stuff that I would eat at home growing up, uh, then that's very either very hard to find and not always great, or it's just sometimes impossible to find like, uh, my family is Gujarati. Uh, within San Francisco, it's very there's like maybe like one or two like restaurants that serve Gujarati food, and if you go like further south towards like Sunnyvale, where there's or some place where there's a lot of uh, where there's like a lot more Indian people, there's a few more restaurants there. But like a lot of the snacks, a lot of the uh, you know like just homestyle things I'm used to, it's pretty hard to find. So I'm just at that point, I'm just like, well, I can either try to order fucking I don't know like palak paneer and kali dal and uh, like butter chicken or wh- whatever from a restaurant again and just kind of like get fatter eating that or try to like cook it myself and so i hear you on that yeah and like for sure in chicago just like growing up in hawaii there's it's just so much more food from asia there than here um so i always feel like here in many respects it's it's kind of like behind in a way of of you know getting the good stuff um but it's yeah it, it can be very frustrating at times 
Um, I, I frequently cook way more just at home just because I'm like, yeah, I can just get this myself or just do it myself. And that's why it's extra frustrating when a restaurant does open that does food well, but it's run by white people or a white chef or a white owner. And I, I have seen that. And it's all about, you know, who gets support to open these restaurants and who, like, here in Nashville, uh, a dumpling um, shaved ice category, Japanese shaved ice restaurant just opened. And I haven't been yet, but I know the food is good because I've eaten the chef's food before, including his shaved ice. And it's exceptional. But he was given the resources to travel and study in Japan and develop his craft. And by no accounts is he not a very talented chef. And I will eat his food. But I will never not be able to think about you know, what Japanese chef is living out there in Nashville who isn't given the ability and funding to open a restaurant and buy buy and have built all the specialized equipment that that this restaurant is able to have and is able to charge, you know, mm -hmm. a couple, a hundred dollars for a lunch. Like, people aren't willing to yeah, pay that amount of money for food unless it comes with some level of prestige or um, or sort of, like, media hype. And it's almost always white chefs that get that. Well, I, I don't know where it's going to go in the future, of course, but um, I, I think a big part of it does have to do just with the socioeconomic, you know, power of of um of an enclave and how robust that that is um so like i because I, I i feel like in I, yeah i feel like in hawaii chefs from like of of asian heritage and stuff like that they have been given the chance to um to go and have the resources to go back to asia and learn you know more of this stuff and to be able to make this stuff but of course when they come back and you know where they serve and whatever else um it's generally not really it's it's pretty interesting because to me i feel like the way that they um they advertise themselves they don't need to really advertise themselves to that white gaze in a way um and they can just do their thing and they'll they'll be fine because they know that the locals you know um they'll, they'll support them that's pretty awesome. Uh, but Michelle, I actually wanted to uh, uh, just uh, bounce off something that you said about, you know, like the fact that it's usually these, uh, you know, these white chefs who get not only the access to capital that allows them to, you know, go explore a different country, learn about the cuisine and then come back and then raise more capital to build a trendy restaurant in a trendy part of town, you know, which is a very expensive undertaking. But I feel like the food like media food media industry complex or whatever you want to call it has actually been evolving in that in a way that isn't great and it's basically comes down to uh having like very specific you know people of color being spokespersons for uh you know for their culture or where they come from right so uh i think so like and the thing is that it kind of be ends up being reductionist in the sense that it 
kind of takes one person's experience and makes tries to make it representative of the entire uh, the entire like cultures like experience of history even if you know that's not it you know you know even if that's not clearly the case right so an example is uh this one uh like indian uh like cookbook writer uh and food media like writer named priya krishna right like uh she basically like kind of became foodie famous for writing about uh something called uh uh like something that's co- something called vaghar or tadka or chonk or various various other things but which is basically spices tempered in oil and usually added at the end of a of you know various indian dishes and uh, so you know like no hate to her but something about her work and the way it was presented pissed me off a lot and the thing i couldn't really put my finger on it till you know thinking about the spot and what was really annoying was that it was kind of presented as one like this mystical thing that nobody knew about which was kind of bogus because every indian person knows about vaghar and kind of has to you know has to like know more about it but also because it's kind of like her it wasn't so much presented as a you know here's a history of baghar or tadka or whatever and you know here's how it's used in different places it was kind of very much reduced to her own personal narrative about about it that you know learning about it from her mom's cooking or you know when stuff like that and that i think is kind of is kind of like this evolution where it, it, where you know you have like a brown face in front of it but basically the underlying content is still still comes from a very western or you know white perspective in some ways right and you know like it's not i don't think it's necessarily the person's fault i think it's that's basically just the whole way your incentive structures are set up to present that and the you know powers that be kind of have an interest in keeping that whole uh, framing of different cultures food yeah and i think that also plays into this loaded concept of authenticity that is talked about ad nauseum in food discussions for ethnic food in that you know when you have these certain perspectives that are highlighted as the authority especially in this like manner that you've talked about um then there's a very it, it limits you know a culture's food to what white people see as authentic when authenticity is itself you know hard to define too because are you talking about authentic in a traditional manner or you know as we were talking about earlier about how you know diaspora is probably evolving at a much slower slower pace than you know our home cultures who you know they they're the like vietnam right now is not the vietnam that my parents left and you know there's all kinds of new dishes and cooks are coming up with all kinds of new foods like um uh um banjang nung is sort of colloquially called vietnamese pizza even though it's not pizza at all and that's an entirely different conversation too about the language around food but you know there's this new there's new dish that's grilled rice paper with like all these different toppings and that's not something my parents ever grew up with and but if you're cooking that in a restaurant here in the US you know some people might not see it as authentic when it's a food that was developed in street food culture in Vietnam and it also really limits you know if you're if you're a chef of asian heritage and opening a restaurant that also limits you in what you can 
not what you can cook in your restaurant, but like when you're, you know, cooking and bringing your ideas together, cooking is very creative, but you'll always feel limited by how you'll be judged on your food and how it relates to this concept of authenticity. I'm just going to say that, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it uh, Bantram Nrong? Yes, Bantram Nrong. Banchang Noon. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I was reading it right, but uh, I was just going to say that sounds bomb as fuck. I would totally eat it. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, and um, like traditionally it's like grilled, but you can do it on a cast iron pan. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, you just stick the rice paper on, um, add like a little, like scramble an egg on top, and then just add whatever toppings. And like the egg is just enough moisture to like soften it as it kind of crisps up from the bottom. Oh, nice. I love it. Oh, that yeah, it's really good. It's really yeah. good. And, and I think earlier when we first chatted about this, like Michelle, that you brought it up in the Discord chat. Um, so yeah, I made it. It's, 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 oh it's yeah, I remember. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so, so on the thing of authenticity, I mean, it's interesting how people like, you know, create like a kind of like a, not exactly a fake, but like a very like new and like manufactured authenticity narrative around certain foods. So, and this is happens like around the world. And I'm curious about how this might apply to diasporic foods. So a great example of, you know, creating a whole, a kind of like a very, like a manufactured authenticity narrative is around uh, this, uh, this like street food from Bombay called uh, Vada Pao. And it's kind of like the most iconic, like street food of Bombay now. Like it's basically like a Vada that's like a fried, uh, kind of like a potato, spicy potato ball deep fried in like chickpea flour and then like put into like a, like a little like Indian style uh, like bread roll or bun called pow. And then, oh, like, I've had this. It's so good. It's yeah, so it's, good. Bomb. It's, bomb. it's bomb. Like whenever I go home, uh, I eat like, I can probably eat five at a time and then hate myself for the rest <laughs> of the day. But yeah, so what's interesting is that like, you know, vadas are like, have been a thing in uh, like in that part of uh, Maharashtra that state Bombay's in for, you know, for, for ages. Right. And Pau like came with the Pau and potatoes came with the Portuguese. So they've been around for like 500 years and, you know, chilies also came with them. But uh, yeah, what's interesting is that these things weren't really put together fully into a Vada Pau until like the sixties actually. And the whole reason it was invented was because there's a right wing, like polit- like Maharashtrian nationalist political party there that, wanted to basically create a homegrown alternative to, uh, you know, like lunch foods or snack foods that usually came from like South India or from other parts of India and kind of wanted to have like a regional nationalism thing going on. And so they created it. And at the same time, a lot of like um, mill workers kind of lost their jobs due to a bunch of strikes and like labor shit that happened in the seventies. So suddenly like the party was like, Hey guys, let's all, like, why don't you guys just make like uh, vada pao stalls all over the city and it's suddenly very like it was kind of like a manufactured narrative about how this is like the true like Maharashtrian working man's food and just went from there but uh, I feel like I feel like you kind of see something like that happening with diasporas in around the around the world as well where uh, you know people kind of create like uh, you know like a whole story around something like uh, I don't know like something like general sauce chicken that uh, you know is unique to the diaspora but uh, is but also has a is unique to the diaspora maybe draws on some older dishes but at the same time is uh kind of uh, becomes a symbol of the diaspora in some in some ways as well and therefore very uh like evokes all kinds of feelings about it 
Yeah, I, I feel like there's definitely some Cantonese dishes um, that come to my mind that are maybe not too well known in the food media. So, like one of the first ones that I um, that comes to my mind is uh, mangonam. So that's like a kind of like a it's like a braised um, brisket. It, it's not really brisket, but that's usually how it's translated. Um, and that's something that, you know, usually um, it it's a dish that's more home style, I believe. And the, the restaurants I've seen that serve it, they, they tend to be more like the sumi kind of places, like, you know, like the chasu and that sort of stuff, those specialists. Some, sometimes they will make this on the side and, and that's the kind of stuff that's, that's disappearing. But for other like second gen generation um, Cantonese that I know a lot of them, they do have this very, very strong um, kind of like um, nostalgic sort of attachment to this thing. Cause it's, you know, it's, it's actually not that hard to make, but uh, for some reason, a lot of people don't want to make it. So it's, you know, it's very attached to restaurant cooking as well. I think that's like an interesting thing to how what we consider restaurant cooking and home cooking differs. Um, like I know a lot of food that I grew up eating at home is nothing that you would find in Vietnamese restaurants. Like there are a lot of really simple soups, like um, they're called guns in Vietnamese, where you eat it, you know, as part of a bigger meal with your you know, just maybe a stir-fried vegetable and then some sort of protein. But it, it's so simple that it's not really the sort of food that people usually think that they can justify selling in a restaurant. And so that's another way that restaurant culture, I think, in the U.S., like, shapes how cuisines from different cultures are are seen and, and what people know about, about that food. Um, I think you, you you know you were talking earlier Arnav, about um, home Indian cooking in the same way. Yeah, no, it's it's very it's very similar, and I think this is some. And uh, I think even like growing up in India, there was a very clear deline, deline, delineation between what's considered restaurant food and what's considered like home style food. So like home food, like you know, like you know, like what you said right now, Michelle. A lot of it is considered like way much more uh, simple or simple or uh, just like not uh, you know like sophisticated enough or whatever to be served in a restaurant but it kind of like has a occupies a very different space because uh, you know there's because you know like when you're going to one of these restaurants you're usually like you know usually it would be like more of a special thing there would be certain places certain kinds of restaurants or like eateries or whatever that would be designed for like you know daily like lunch or whatever and those kind of like occupy their own niche but uh, yeah, like Gujarati homestyle food, like it's called like, like, like the, the people call it like uh, BBRS, which stands for like Dal Bhat Rotli Shak. And it's like Dal and Dal, which basically translates to like Dal or lentils and then rice and rotis and rotis and like Shak just means like vegetables cooked there. And that's not something you would find at a, in, you would typically find at a Indian restaurant outside of India, maybe in some very specific ones in the UK or something like that. But uh, no, like the whole curry house food was created, I think 
I think the whole like restaurant style food was created out of both like uh, basically has its roots in things like, you know, like displacement of people. So like, you know, a lot of people who got displaced from displaced during partition, for example, opened up these restaurants in Delhi and then like ended up immigrating to uh, the UK or wherever, where they opened up these other restaurants there. And then they kind of like had to create a, they kind of had to create a style of food that was, you know, like tasty, but also like easy to cook at scale. And so uh, they kind of created like, you know, these base gravies that would translate, base gravies that would translate to different curries and different kinds of uh, dishes. And that just like allowed them to standardize their operation a lot more. And I think you see this with many different kinds of cuisines as well, right? So if you go to a sushi restaurant in the US, for example, there'll be like a standard set of sushi rolls and a standard like sort of nigiri and then a standard set of like, you know, appetizers and maybe ramen or like, you know, or like, you know, like quote unquote main dishes that you'd have over there as well. And so like whenever we, I think whenever we try to think of a cuisine in terms of what we'd eat at a restaurant alone, it does tend to be very reductive because what the restaurants are optimizing for isn't to showcase the diversity or the entire, uh, or the entire like history of that particular uh, cuisine. It's about figuring out what can you cook at scale and that's going to, you know, feed uh, the most amount of people and make the most amount of people happy, right? Yeah. So once yeah, again, it comes yeah. down to money. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, like you said, it's, it's just such a hard industry. And like, that's absolutely something you have to figure into your menu is how you're going to make money off of it. And even when you do make money off of it, you're probably still... You know, there's there's so much like labor exploitation in the restaurant industry. It's just like you, you barely make money even in an industry where labor is very often exploited. So that yeah, that's very telling. Food food costs. Yeah, that's very telling. Yeah, yeah, and I th- I think this is a good segue because I know this gets brought up uh, more and more um, in a lot of food media is like this whole thing about yeah valuing, um, you know uh food in terms of like prices and you know just charging more um so getting away from the the idea that say like indian or chinese or vietnamese is always this cheap you know food um so it's like the problem with that is that you know it it is also tied with the the socioeconomic kind of um factors of how those um that diaspora is treated within America. And so it's kind of like, how, how do you raise what was never, I feel like what's never discussed is how do you raise food prices? Say like, for example, um, in, you know, in Chinatown where it's, it's Chinese are very working class as well. And historically, because of all the discrimination, they're kind of kept, um, uh, working class, especially for the ones that remain and stay inside of Chinatown. So it's like if you start charging so much more, obviously, well, you know, people won't be able to afford eating there and and are going to lose the business um, and they'll just go under. I know it's I, I have trouble like thinking how how to break out of that. And, you know. And a lot of the time you know, these, you know, small, small family run restaurants can charge these low prices because, you know, a lot of times it's their family working. So they're, they, they're, they're keeping labor costs low by, 
you know, not even hiring other workers and then paying workers that they do hire a very low wage. And so, like, I don't know how to break out of that. And then with, with you know, um, Asian diaspora who are trying to open more, I guess, more of that, like, white model restaurant. Like, not necessarily that that's a good thing, but if, if, if you are trying to open a restaurant that has, like, better labor practices and sourcing of ingredients, you know, it's, it's hard to get people to buy into paying for that. For right. Sure. Well, well, I think something that happens a lot um, is is in in food media and you start to see it in some uh, food professionals. It's like, okay, we're just going to straight up make more fancier food and, and showcase this stuff, which I think, you know, it, it, it is great, but I think it's treated kind of like as a panacea, like, oh, if you start producing this higher end fancy stuff that's like Vietnamese or whatever else, then somehow that's just going to fix everything. But it doesn't get at the the root cause of how, say like, yeah, the Vietnamese diaspora in America many times, um, like many other Asian diaspora, they, they, they're kind of cut off um, from a lot of like city um, resources and whatever else. And we're kind of left to fend for ourselves. And so it's kind of like if we just look to cook trying to cook our way like produce our way out of it we're never going to do it It, it's going to have to come from connecting um the issues of how the asian diaspora is um discriminated in america and how we are kind of kept out of um having access to a lot of capital as well Mm -hmm. yeah and the question of like what is fancy what is quote-unquote fancy because a lot of the stuff that you know like chinese banquet halls you know like um the fancier um restaurants like a lot of their food is like banquet style food but it's still sold at like (laughs) like um like deli prices Mm -hmm. so it's like and it's just it comes from and i think someone was posting about how you know, a lot of Southeast Asian and South Asian um, curries, you know, like uh, slow simmered stews, you know, like they look like soups, but they require like pounding of like a dozen spices, you know, by hand. And it's still sold at like below $10 for a serving. And it's like, it's basically just the fact that people of color, their labor is devalued, you know? And like, that's like, how do you, how in, in capitalism and in the racial hierarchy that is established globally, do you break out of that? You can't, you can't do that with just um, changing how you cook alone, because that just reinforces the um, fine dining aesthetic as the only um, model of what is fancy, right? It's it's just the French model. Why does that get get to be the only thing that's considered globally fancy? Um, and there's also just oh, I forgot what I was gonna say. 
Yeah, kind of related to that. It's kind of funny. I, I first found out about this through this um, uh, cooking. It's more like a cooking and food show in in Chinese, uh, all about like Cantonese food, and it's produced in China. And that's how I found out about um, uh, sea urchin fried rice. And but the amazing thing about it, and it it is Cantonese. I didn't know about it until the show. Is that it was for the longest time. It's like a very specific regional. Coastal thing because obviously Yunnan fried rice is that the one? Mm-mm. No, no. Okay, because there's called- another fried rice that's really, really fancy and expensive. Um, but I think I don't think it's Cantonese. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, okay. Oh, no, that's all right. But yeah, it's it's really fascinating because this show they they showed in this village because it's like yeah, it's just like a f- fishing village, and they had all these different um, dishes made of sea urchin which typically is a very expensive thing and of course if you think about it well it's like you can't really dry sea urchin and whatever else you just have to have it pretty fresh and for a while because of just the instability inside of china for the longest time that they didn't have like like my parents did not grow up with with a refrigerator that was like a concept they couldn't even imagine and so to have these um, the sea urchin there for these villagers, that's just like normal for them. But outside of the village, it's highly prized. So it wasn't until um, refrig- modern, modern refrigeration was made available to them that they could ship this sort of stuff out and, and sell sell that stuff. That's super fascinating. And I, th- and I, think, uh, I think it's one of those things where you kind of see, uh, you kind of have like... Uh, global demand for certain foods becoming a double-edged sword like uh, quinoa and acai and all of these like you know like trendy ass like health foods uh you know they're like staple crops in you know parts of the andes or parts of brazil for a long time and the moment there's like global demand for it on the one hand it's good because it means farmers who are growing a lot of it uh can suddenly like you know get their money's worth for it but on the other hand people who like rely on it as consumers especially like you know like poorer local people suddenly can't afford this suddenly can't afford this stuff anymore because it all gets diverted to it's being exported to the u.s or whatever right and so there's always like a bit of a catch-22 over there and i know a few like companies that are trying to like you know like uh quote-unquote decolonize or like reform like in like the global food like the global food industry looking at things like spices or uh you know like spices or coffee or whatever and I feel like there's always like a trade-off that has to be made where if you want to, you know, pay your workers a fair wage and make sure they have a share of the profits or something, uh, you kind of do end up having to, you know, market these things to people with capital. And usually that ends up being, uh, you know, trend like, you know, bougie white people, right? And so that kind of like, there's basically like a, almost like a no, like pure win dynamic even though like there might be a generally favorable outcome in terms of, you know, people whose labor goes into making this thing, making this kind of food in the first place, being able to like earn a better, earn a better living from it. Yeah. Or like um, an area, once some food becomes super popular, they have to reorganize their local economy to be built around, you know, like, producing and harvesting that one specific thing and then that kind of destroys 
a lot of the local culture or traditions or just like the environment and then they kind of become dependent on the global demand for that thing and so overall it it creates like kind of a imbalanced um local um ecosystem yeah and like and like we've seen how well it it worked with uh, america's agriculture sector to do that right like in the 50s of 50s after world war 2 you kind of had this the entire country being like integrated at a like not like racially integrated but integrated through highways transport etc in a way that was pretty much never done in history anywhere else and at this end you also had like the all, all this like intense agriculture policy that basically let people let the people growing like corn and soybeans and other like cash crops way more than local stuff and i feel like that just kind of destroyed so much uh, like you know regional food culture in america for decades that i think it just left like a lot of white america like culturally uh, bereft of any of anything good which leads to uh, like you know like disgusting jello salad and other things as staple foods <laughs> right yeah. and that's why they have to pillage our shit now i know white people are like locusts <laughs> Basically. I was just thinking that. Like they always say like Chinese people are locusts or Asian people are locusts, but like But it's the white people that they're are the real locusts. locusts. Yeah, man, like I mean, yeah, it's yeah, like if, yeah, like most of uh, like most of eastern southeast Asia and like parts uh, and parts of India as well like went through multiple droughts and famines and like war and you know all the hardships that came from that over the last century. and you know europe did as well with uh, you know food rationing during the world wars and stuff like that but uh, i feel like most asian foods kind of not only survived but thrived in some ways like yeah you lost a lot of stuff especially a lot of the you know like kind of more uh, intricate like fine dining cultures uh i remember reading about how like you know like the a lot of the food culture of a city like hue which in vietnam which i think was the imperial capital kind of ended up getting destroyed by first colonialism and then like the war over there uh but uh, yeah i feel like in the west a lot of the you look at like a lot of recipes from before uh before world war 1 and world war 2 uh they kind of just fell by the wayside and suddenly you had all of that replaced by like a bunch of canned vegetables and like you know like overly boiled like crap and this shit with no flavor at all because the food food rationing just killed everybody's uh imagination or something and i'm like oh this is you know sad this is honestly kind of sad because like at the end of the day i still do like some old like some old like british like old british food or like old french food as well like no discrimination over there right <laughs> yeah i feel like yeah. that kind of has to do sorry what were you going to say john oh no it's just like so i i have some you know white friends and and the fascinating thing i found out you know when i i mean this was many years ago i asked them but something i noticed was always that their parents generation did not know how to cook and so when they mentioned you know home family meals and stuff it was usually like this highly processed you know usually canned stuff a lot of um convenience food and whatever else but if you ask them about their grandparents um they also they were they were great cooks and or they are great cooks and i always found that really fascinating that america just went through this huge like loss of food culture i think that has to do with the creation of whiteness um it kind of went on at the same time as like the whole 
like scientific revolution and just like the mass production and processed food revolution was happening in the U.S. because um, like whiteness, it kind of required like a complete de-ethnicization of like that whole generation. And at the same time, it was when all of these like, you know, like mass manufactured processed food products came along. So it was it was a concerted policy of creating this like new age. Like at the time it was like it was new age, you know, um, it was like technologically advanced um, ideal of American whiteness that um, we had this culture of uh, ubiquitous and um, exactly the same like bland shit just like mayonnaise for everyone like 40 acres and a mule and a jar of mayonnaise for everyone like that was the post world war ii um ideal essentially and i think like we're still seeing the ramifications of that you know i think in china that actually happened in the 80s the 70s and 80s too because like my parents do not know how to cook or like they figured it out eventually but there there was a whole generation of just like kids who had to study really hard and just work really really hard to build the economy um from you know like a feudal agrarian society to like 21st century like 6g technology you know like that didn't happen overnight and like that required a lot of sacrifice and i think that's something that happened you know in like the last 30 years in china and that is something that happened like maybe a deck or sorry a generation or two before in the u.s but i think the difference in china is there was always <clears throat> there's still always like um people who kept those cultures alive because when my parents they they were um academics you know they were middle class but there were people who were always there were always like street vendors um people cooking really awesome stuff for them and for my generation it was also the same but like kind of the the generation after us you know people who are in their 20s now they all know how to cook because their lives are easier mm -hmm. <laughs> they're not like they're not economy building they're not like uh, nation building and they can just like rest and like watch youtube videos and learn relearn these um traditional dishes and like uh relearn this cuisine and uh synthesize new stuff based on like um pop culture but like i think for for america that whole whiteness you know issue like it required just uh that 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 assimilation that just destroyed everything and now there's like a vacuum a cultural vacuum that like our generation of hipsters is like trying desperately to fill because we don't have a historical culture so we're just we're just grasping at other cultures trying to take whatever we can from them which you know is is the culture of whiteness is that taking you know it's not it's not really assimilation it's just taking and erasure because i feel like 
Asian food, there's like that cultural exchange and assimilation. Like that's more like a true assimilation where, you know, even within like those times of hardship, you know, for example, like Korea, they took, you know, they had like a couple decades where people were starving and all they had were government rations of spam. And they took that spam and put it into Buddhijige. And now you have like this whole amazing thing, you know, and like those, uh, those outside ingredients were incorporated into the um, existing historical cultural products. And now like their flavors are incorporated and it's just become a new thing. But for whites, there's not like a historical culture. There's not like a food culture. You know, there's like different ethnicities within whiteness have their own cultures. But like if you wanted a national idea of what American food is, it's all like pillaging other other people's shit and calling and stealing it and calling it your own and i think that that create that vacuum it creates this like just this idea of commodification like like our our whole nation was built on the idea of just like taking shit killing people and just calling their shit our own and i think that just it's a commodification thing you know it's a it's is a fundamental devaluation of people. And that's why the whenever whites take Asian stuff and try to do other things with it, it comes out terrible. Because they're like, oh, fuck, we'll just take the noodles out and put in quinoa. You know? We'll take out Bro. the bean sprouts and put in kale. Because Bro. it's just substituting one ingredient for another. It should be the same. But, like, it's not. You know? Like, there's a substitution. It's it's a culture of substitution and commodification and not incorporation. And I think that's what makes it bad. And that's, that's that was created, like, you know, just because of the... Like, you can see, the, like, the history um and the policies of like genocide and colonization and it's right there in the dishes that they make these shitty yeah throwing back to our mention of the new york times cooking section earlier there literally is that recipe for quote Vietnamese style soup with broccoli and quinoa, quinoa <laughs> recipe, which I think oh originally was labeled. I think it was originally labeled as pho until people got mad about it. But still, yeah, nobody, nobody would think to make that unless they were from a culture of genocide. Let me tell you that. The thing okay. is, I feel like they do that with ethnic white food as well, like. Uh, exactly like yeah, okay like like i feel like like with italian food uh like have you guys ever seen this twitter account which is basically about italians getting mad at like white people yes yeah yeah, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so i mean like you know there's like you know there's italian american food which has its own like tradition but then there's i don't know kind of like just the mass process like easy version of it but i feel like there's something similar going on with french food and like quote-unquote fine dining right like this whole alice water style of uh I think David Chang likes to shit on it and calls it like just putting figs on a plate uh, with, uh, with like some <laughs> leaves and shit. Very accurate. Yeah, it's just accurate. But the thing is, it basically comes down to, okay, like, you know, we're going to, we, you know, we ourselves are like, basically the, the thought process is that, 
you know we ourselves as you know white as white americans or whatever don't have this tradition to fall back on or we've lost it for whatever reason so you know let's go to france let's uh, you know study what some like you know like grizzled old chef or some like you know like some french auntie in like the on the coast is doing with you know all this like local stuff and then let's try to transplant it over here and it's like there's nothing wrong with that like i think it's actually a great thing to like you know use the same principles about like eating like stuff locally and you know trying to like bring out like flavors of like really high quality ingredients etc but it kind of just gets presented and taken to a neck like to an uncomfortable level to the point where it's like you know like just hyper focused on it or like hyper focused on replicating that french style without like trying to adapt it to whatever like chaos or whatever a uh, change comes from you know situating it in california or new york nashville or wherever right mm. yeah yeah i don't think we can even talk about american fine dining unless we talk about america's long standing um inferiority complex with respect to european culture oh yeah it's yeah oh yeah it's huge and all american fine dining basically came from uh, that whole like french fine dining tradition which you know like as america like rose in power like you kind of had this first wave of like colonial globalization happening where you kind of had french fine dining becoming uh you had kind of had like fine dining fine dining becoming uh kind of commodified and kind of organized around your like principles from uh chefs like escoffier or uh if not them like kind of around the standard like set of menu items that you could then like replicate at fine dining establishments around the entire like colonized world right and so like there's a whole uh, there's a whole angle about how like what we consider fine dining is basically a basically was basically created for the convenience of empire builders uh, around the world around the world yeah and like just the way it's all like the the format of this like fine dining concept and you know earlier we were talking about who has michelin stars and so much of that is focused on the type of service that that you have at at the restaurant like it's mm-hmm. not even all about the food it's about the service and then on top of that it's also like a lot of these fine dining restaurants follow this the french restaurant labor practice of mm-hmm. staging and um which is basically unpaid labor it, it's it's a common practice if you want to get into fine dining to stage at a restaurant to gain experience and what that means is you work there for free so that you can go on to your next gig and say you know I worked at so and so Michelin star restaurant and this is just accepted practice so thinking again to when we were talking about like who has capital and access to these restaurants who is able to afford working for free for very long periods of time like months even like a year working for free right in, right. in order to break into system. yeah 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 that's insane and also like if you're a woman like what are you like if you're staging as a woman like you're not an employee you have no rights at all like you have no like um avenue for seeking justice if some if like the main chef like sexually assaults you oh yeah and that's a huge problem yeah like the sexual harassment is huge problem in the industry and sexism as far as 
what women chefs are expected to do. Um, even, even like, even if you're staging at these restaurants, like hoping to like break into this industry, a lot of times you'll be shuffled into doing what's considered more like women's work, quote unquote, like the pastry chef, which is always paid less than any other position in the restaurant. And there's, there's just also a culture of like machoism in a lot of these kitchens and it's very hostile as a woman and even more so if you're a woman of color. That's some BS because I feel like being a pastry chef is kind of like being uh it's kind of like doing like brain surgery but for food like seeing some of the stuff that happens it's like seems much more labor intensive and uh you know then working the line or something like that. Yeah, it's very labor intensive and, you know, a lot of like, you know, very specific tasks and timing that you need to do, like, to have to have to put forth this product. And again, going back to like what people are willing to pay, if you think about it, when you go eat at a restaurant, you're also not willing to pay as much for a dessert as you are for, you know, your main courses and your sides or other other parts of the menu. And so like that's all built into the structure of what the restaurant is willing to pay its labor and how pastry chefs are pushed down to the bottom of that priority. Yeah, and and the thing that's really fascinating to me about that is like it's almost like a double bind for for women is like it seems like many cultures around the world because of how patriarchy functions is that in the realm of um the domestic realm cooking at home that's like where women are and that's like labor that is not valued at all and um whereas when it becomes professionalized and something that has maybe to some degree some like um you know you can make money off of it or has prestige then that becomes a very male-centric um you know sort of sphere and it pushes out women um you yeah, just pushes women out of it in a really ruthless way. And one of the biggest ironies is that, you know, when you read a lot about um, these questions, I, I can't remember where it came from, but um, it, it's kind of passed around a lot um, between chefs, apparently, where it's like, you know, it's kind of like, what's the last meal you would have, that sort of thing. And there's like, a, I, I even have a book about that. And, and it's like, most of them, they're like, you know, meals made, you know, either by like a parent or something or like, you know, home style stuff, usually by a mother or something like that. And I'm like, so, so people value this labor that women clearly are making, but you know, it, it, it can only be valued in such a way that you won't pay any money for it. And it's just kind of like this, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll feel nice about it emotionally and with, with nostalgia, but we'll, we'll never, we'll never do anything to protect the safety of, of women in, in that sphere or to give them um, any sort of real respect in that way to, to have a career in it. And the, the disrespect comes even at like really small little interactions. And it is something that gets really annoying if you're a woman in, in the industry. Like I, I'm fortunate to the bars I work in are all women owned and run, which is awesome. But there's been, you know, my, um, you know, the managers and all that I work with have multiple instances of people coming into the bar and, you know, asking 
to talk to the person in charge or to talking to the manager and always assuming that it's not them and straight on like asking like even when they say yeah that that's me and then them just ignoring that and then asking no no no, I want to talk to who's in charge and no it's it's me um or even like um bartenders who are women face that all the time with men who think they can't be the bartender at the bar because for some reason that's not that's that's too like manly work for for them so like from every interaction from that low level to trying to get funding for your restaurant um i have a friend who's a chef and has struggled with this all her career like it's it's a constant struggle as a woman and there's no HR in any of these places. Like, there's no one you can report anything to. Mo- a lot of the time, most of I'd say most of the time, no. Like, a lot of times, the more, like, prestigious restaurants, like restaurant groups, they, they are big enough to have, like, an HR group. But, again, like, a lot of times, HR groups are about protecting the company and not the worker. Hey everyone, that's part one of our discussion on food. The second half of the conversation plus a ton of other great bonus podcasts are available uh, when you join our Patreon. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.